Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Brooke Masters. Joining me in the studio today is Daniel Schaefer, investment banking correspondent, and Charlene Goff, retail banking correspondent. This week, we'll discuss Standard Chartered, a week after the bank agreed a $340 million settlement with U.S. regulators over its alleged failures to comply with U.S. sanction regimes. We do think there will be further fines. The feeling among analysts, investors, and within the bank is that these will not be as high as the $340 million they've already had to pay to the New York regulator. We'll also take a look at HSBC, which is also facing criticism for the way it has handled sanctions regimes and anti-money laundering controls in the Middle East as well as Mexico. Really interesting revelations came out of the same Senate hearing about the bank's dealings with Syria and the fact that it had catered to Rami Makhlouf, who was the first cousin of Bashar al-Assad. And finally, we'll take a look at the latest on LIBOR and various efforts to investigate the banks for alleged manipulation of the London Interbank Offered Rate. The Treasury Select Committee and its chairman, Andrew Tyree, criticized the Bank of England in particular, but also the DFSA, for sort of arbitrarily helping to push out Bob Diamond. First, let's look at Standard Chartered. Standard Chartered last week, after talking really tough, decided to pay a $340 million settlement to a New York regulator related to its handling of payments from Iran. Charlene, what happened? Why was there a U-turn? Well, I mean, it was a fascinating week and a a really interesting story coming out of Standard Chartered. Basically, it was caught completely off guard when these allegations from New York first came out that we discussed on the podcast last week. Initially, Peter Sands, the chief executive, and Sir John Peace, the chairman, came out incredibly strongly against them, issued a very robust denial of the claims. And there was even talk among senior ranks of the bank of pursuing legal action against the regulator, which would have been pretty unprecedented. A week later, they held their hands up to a certain degree by settling. I mean, they're still claiming they didn't do anything wrong. They're still claiming that the regulators claims that they hid $250 billion of Iranian transactions are completely false. And they're sticking by their assertion that the value of payments that could have breached sanctions was only $14 million. So while they're they're not admitting any wrongdoing, they wanted to reach a quick settlement. And that basically came about because there was incredible pressure on the bank from investors who did not want this dragging on for days on end. They did not want the prospect of a sort of potentially humiliating public showdown with the New York regulator, which was something that they were threatening the bank with. And there was also this threat that the bank could lose its US license. So even though that was felt to be some, somewhat unlikely, you know, just the fact that it was put on the table freaked investors out and they just wanted the issue dealt with as quickly as they could. But of course, we're not really done in that the New York regulator who settled is the banking regulator. We haven't yet heard from the US federal authorities who in fact have jurisdiction over a lot of this stuff. How problem is that for Standard Chartered? Well, exactly. I mean, that's what's interesting is that it was the New York regulator that broke ranks from four other arguably bigger and stronger US regulators. 
uh, who are also pursuing the matter. So we, we do think there will be further fines. The feeling among analysts, investors and within the bank is that these will not be as high as the $340 million they've already had to pay to the New York regulator. Estimations vary from about sort of 700 million for an overall fine, including the 340 they've already played. But others think the top up fines could be as little as 100 million. So it sounds like they've paid the worst of it. But that's just the financial penalty. I mean, the, the big issue for Stanchart is how deeply it's damaged their reputation and whether they can recover from that. And we're seeing some sort of activity within the bank to try and address some concerns that investors have about the board, about various things that we, that we could get in the next couple of months. When you talk about addressing investor concerns, I know there, you reported last week that there might be a shakeup of the non-executive directors. Is the idea to sort of come in with a fresh broom or bring in stronger challenged management? I think the big concern with the Standard Chartered Board is focused on the non-executives, a number of which, actually more than half of which, have been there since 2005, at least. And their senior independent director has been there for over a decade, which actually contravenes corporate governance guidelines, which say after 10 years, you may not be as independent as you once were. So those plans are afoot. The bank was already looking to make some changes ahead of this Iranian allegations, but they have been accelerated. It's looking for at least two, maybe three big changes to the non-execs. And that could happen within the next couple of months. Now, there has been some criticism, actually some reaction from analysts this morning saying, fine, that if the bank was already doing this, but this is not a solution to the to the problem, you know, that have emerged in the last week or so. And they hope it's not a kind of diversion tactic away from the senior executive. So Peter Sands, the chief exec and the chairman. Now, there has also been a bit of criticism towards the chairman. Not at all for his role at Standard Chartered. In fact, investors want him to focus more sharply on the bank. You know, Sir John Peace has two other big chairmanships in the UK of Burberry and Experience. So they may be looking for him to give up one or other of those so he can pay more close attention to the bank. That was certainly a complaint about other banking chairmen in the financial crisis and part of David Walker's report before, of course, he decided to take on a personal involvement at Barclays. Moving on, another bank has also had trouble with dealings in the Middle East, and that would be HSBC. They've been in the news repeatedly for issues involving their handling of the sanctions regimes and also of anti-money laundering controls in, in Mexico and elsewhere. What's the latest on that, Charlene? This was interesting as well, actually, because some fresh details came out last month when HSBC was called before the U.S. Senate. And actually, the focus of that hearing was its dealings with Mexico. And there was some quite damaging revelations there about how the bank helped finance Mexican drug cartels. Now, it hasn't been accused of any wrongdoing as yet, but it did set aside $700 million with its first half results to cover any potential fines. So it thinks there's something coming. And that fine will go further than the Mexican issue to also encompass potential breaches of other sanctions. And what the FT revealed last week was sort of a catalogue of dealings between HSBC and potentially corrupt regimes like Standard Chartered. HSBC was involved in dealings with Iran, some of which may prove to be considered illegitimate. We're yet to get the sort of full details on those. But they did, like like many European banks, you know, and they were dealing with Iran mainly between 2001, 2007. And this was 
not illegal in itself. There was a way that the US actually encouraged these kinds of dealings through what we call U-turn transactions, which were allowed basically as long as the bank wasn't dealing directly with Iranian entities, it had to go through a sort of bit of a convoluted route around and just pass through New York for dollar clearing purposes. So we're yet we're yet to see exactly what HSBC's involvement was there. There were also some really interesting revelations that came out of the same Senate hearing about the bank's dealings with Syria and the fact that it had catered to Rami Makhlouf, who was the first cousin of Bashar al-Assad and, you know, a very key financier to the Syrian government. Now, HSBC made clear last week that it complied with all global sanctions, that it, it didn't question the fact that it had these accounts, but the implication was that they had been closed down after Mr. Maklouf was formally sanctioned in 2008. It's all very complicated because the, the rules kept changing. And I think the European banks uh, are late to this party and that the US banks all faced lots of disciplinary issues five years ago for their dealings with Iran. And the European banks, I think, in many ways, because they were not directly directly impacted by the sanctions regime, are now having to go back into their records and discover what exactly they did. And it's also, I mean, there's all these allegations that fly about. I mean, HSBC was also linked to Saudi Arabian banks, which the US Senate accused of having links to terrorist organizations. The Saudi Arabian bank that HSBC was linked to has denied claims that it helped finance terrorists. They obviously <laughs> they obviously don't want to admit to being terrorist financers because that's bad for their business model. <laughs> exactly. But also we've had past dealings with HSBC being one of the biggest banks to Colonel Gaddafi's Libyan regime. And, and again, it wasn't the only one. I mean, most big European banks would have some record of, you know, financing people, you know, potentially unsavory, unsavory individuals or, or governments. And they've just got to be careful they don't break sanctions. It's also worth keeping in mind that uh, HSBC is not and Standard Chartered are not the only ones that are being in any way investigated. So there are yeah, other, I mean, there what are else other do we European, know, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, there are other European banks that have settled in the past already in the past few years. I and mean, we had ING recently with a more than $600 million settlement. And uh, there was ABN AMRO um, and there was Barclays that settled uh, on, on similar allegations. And there are more investigations against a number of European banks ongoing and despite many of them having having stopped dealing with Iran in 2008 when the rules changed, there are still investigations ongoing about the time before that. In classic US fashion, they're never willing to let sleeping dogs lie. They do not want to move on without exacting their pound of flesh. Yeah, and we're, we're going to see more settlements in the, in the future on that uh, as well. While we're on the subject of investigations and settlements, Daniel, you've been following the latest on the LIBOR allegations. I guess we had a really harsh report over the weekend about how the Bank of England, the Financial Services Authority and Barclays Management dealt with the allegations that they had a bunch of traders who were manipulating the LIBOR rate. What did we learn? It was very interesting. Unsurprisingly, the Treasury Select Committee did criticize Barclays for what had happened and for for having a culture that helped create this LIBOR scandal. And also, obviously, Bob Diamond, the outgoing chief executive. But what was really interesting, I thought, because it was more surprising, was that the Treasury Select Committee and its chairman, Andrew Tyree, criticized the Bank of England in particular, but also the DFSA, for sort of arbitrarily 
pushing out or helping to push out Bob Diamond out of his job as chief executive. Given that they'd been so critical of Bob Diamond, it's interesting that they didn't want him gone in this yeah. way. Well, the thing was, Andrew Tyree didn't say he, sh- he shouldn't have gone or they shouldn't mm-hmm. have pushed him out. But what he did say is what was wrong that they reacted to press reports and public pressure and only then pushed him out, which was interesting because they were basically saying, you know, that the Bank of England lacks strong corporate governance and, you know, it was it was sort of arbitrarily done the way because the Bank of England and the FSA both called the chairman of Barclays just shortly after the settlement on LIBOR came out and they actually in those calls pushed for the resignation of Bob Diamond. And then of course the bank went even further didn't it and they called Marcus Aegis the chairman in for tea and or maybe not tea for a meeting. Is that right Charlene? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that was a few days, as Daniel said, a few days after they settled. And I think maybe what happened was that when the FSA came out with the settlement and its report the week earlier, it thought maybe the bank would take responsibility and decide, you know, on the back of that, Bob Diamond would go. And I know we went into that weekend following the political pressure with the regulators expecting his resignation over that weekend. And then when Marcus Aegis, the chairman, resigned, they thought they better step in and make clearer their position. It's unclear, I guess, whether they always thought Bob Diamond would go or they thought it just wasn't their place to get involved. And then, you know, they started looking fairly weak in in the whole situation and decided to put on a bit more pressure. I think the Treasury Select Committee has a point there, though, in that either if you settle, you clarify these things in advance you know, it, it, if this isn't clarified, then you can't just go. If you see that there's so much public pressure and political pressure, you can't just go back and say, oh, actually, we want the CEO to go. Certainly, it would be wildly controversial if something like that had happened in the US. There was a. Elliot Spitzer got into huge trouble maybe five years ago for trying to force out the chairman of AIG in the middle of their scandal back then. And all the US regulators, except Spitzer, came out and said, you can't do that. You can either do it as part of a settlement. Or you back out. You don't tell the board to get rid of their people. That, mm. that that's inappropriate. One other thing to it, it obviously has some ramifications now, particularly given that next year the, the Bank of England is going, going to take over the prudential regulation, and the Bank of England has reacted to to the, the Treasury Select Committee by rightly saying that that actually in the Financial Services Bill, which will basically sketch out the guidelines on the future prudential regulation, there will be more checks and balances in the prudential regulation authority within with non-executive directors. This is part of a longer running fight between Tyree and the bank. He has been pushing for almost a year now for even further controls on the bank. He's been very worried about an out of control bank with too much power and inadequate governance. And the current controls, it should be put in, were put in partially because Tyree was insisting on them. I think Tyree is now hoping to press his advantage and get even more because he's never gotten everything he asked for. And the bank has, you know, kicking and screaming, objected to any kind of governance. I mean, they would, they would, I think, take issue with that. But they have definitely not been enthusiastic about revamping their structures. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether whether Tyree can turn this LIBOR scandal into yet another tool with which to beat the bank about the head and demand more governance, because we're still waiting for this bill, which is moving through the Lord's process for sort of the last round of amendments before the thing becomes law at the end of the year. Yeah, it's been interesting to see how much did uh, Andrew Tyree used the Treasury Select Committee, not only to push against Barclays, but also to what, what you were saying, to bring through his own agenda, which is further reform of the Bank of England. It'll be interesting to see how all that plays out over the next few months, because clearly this 
this is not a finished story either on LIBOR or on the reform of the of the bank and the regulatory structure. But I think that's all we've got time for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Charlene and Daniel for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. We're taking next week off for the bank holiday, so we'll see you in September. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.